Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And if you are joining us for the very first time, thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us on Yay! this journey. Oh boy, we're getting the we're getting regular occurrences of Lucas interjections in in the intro. But I think it 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 lends itself to every intro being unique. Every episode is unique. Every artist is unique. Every intro should be unique. And if you like what you hear, which we obviously hope that you do. Um, leave a like, a subscription, a review on what you like, maybe what you don't like. Hit the five stars so we can, uh, uh, you know, totally rig the algorithm and send our podcast to everyone who wants to learn more about the interesting types of music that exists all throughout history and and through our time in this time in history. We're actually going a little bit back in this episode. Um, we'll get there, though. If you want to get in on the conversation and I'm certain that you do. Check out our Facebook and Instagram page at Good Music Podcast. There's other good music lovers there and information on upcoming episodes. If you want episodes early, which, oh my goodness, who doesn't want episodes early? Who doesn't want exclusive content? Check I out do. our... Yes. Well, you get to create the exclusive content. So, that's I true. mean, there's nothing that's getting withholding from you. But if that sounds like... Dear listener, check out our Patreon page. For a few bucks a month, you can support us, and we really appreciate all of our patrons. And you also get a little bit in return. Anyway, so we are continuing our um, Black History Month celebration bonanza. And who are we talking about today, Lucas? So we, I'm, I'm surprised. Well, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm not surprised just because uh, I. Growing up, I never listened to Motown, but surprisingly, this is this is one of our few Motown episodes. And I'm one of the things I learned researching this episode is that I we got to do a lot more because there's <laughs> so many great artists um, from Motown that we haven't even talked about yet. And just again, the main reason just because me and my family never really listened to Motown growing growing up. Obviously, I knew who. Uh, what Motown was and and a lot of the artists that were there just from hearing them occasionally on the radio, but it was never something that uh, that we would put on intentionally and go, let's let's sit down and listen to this. Yeah. And uh, now I'm just like, well, crap. There's there's such a a large wealth of incredible music that that we haven't even touched yet, and so it, it's always exciting. Whenever I research an artist and I uncover a huge section of just like, oh my gosh, I have potential episodes here for an eternity. Oh. Oh, okay. Like to where it's just like, I didn't even think about these artists. And now I've got all these ideas for episodes that I can do. It's always, it's always fun when that happens. 
oh yeah when you when you open a door almost to a new genre because i will say that at no point am i running out of artists to talk about but at this point i've talked about most of my favorites at this point yeah or the people that i'm already really familiar with mm-hmm to where I, I have a predisposition and a pre-knowledge coming into the research part of each episode. It that makes the is, research harder, too. When... It does, because I have to start from square. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's always easier when I kind of, like, go into an episode kind of knowing what songs I'm going to pick or at least having a good idea. But, like, in, say, today's episode, um, I was just like, I'm have no idea what song is going to pick until I actually get in and start listening. And Grant, probably a way that you can know whether I'm familiar with it or not is how late I get you the song. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. The later I get true. them to you, the more it means that I had to really listen and hear a good portion of the music before I could make any kind of educated decisions yeah most of most of our volume two songs because obviously it's volume two we've already done them those come out pretty quickly yeah but brand new artists especially like brand new genres or thing or or areas of music that neither of us really are predispositioned to it's like the listening time kind of goes down because it's just like there's so much that i don't know you don't know and obviously you do all the research so um that's kind of that's kind of the the rate limiting factor there. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's it's getting now to the point to where more often than not it's going to be kind of a blank slate. But not to say that it's going to completely shift to that, mm-hmm. but it's going to start happening more and more. It's kind of an advantage though because you can be really unbiased because you can. You know how to introduce an artist because you were just introduced to them. That's true. So it's not like you're nerding out about your favorite artist and whoever's listening is like, I do not care about this very particular. I just want to, I just want to get a good introduction. Yeah. So our so, our volume views get like that a lot, but yes, uh, they do, especially <laughs> the ones that we're really passionate about. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. So it's good to just have stuff like this all the time. Yeah. All of that was a big old long introduction to say that we're talking about the Supremes in this episode. Mm -hmm. And it'll almost like turn that right into our first thoughts. Okay. So (laughs) we kind of just gave our first thoughts. I think we both have the same first thought as just name recognition. And that's about it. I I would probably go a little bit past that, but I'll I'll hear your complete thought. That that's that's pretty much my complete thoughts. I mean, honestly, I know the Supremes, Diana Ross and the Supremes. I know that those names go together. I know that they were a big deal. Um, but I just I never I could not name a single song. And that's it. I mean, that's that's all you got. And I think they like. I have I have an image in my head where they're all like standing around like a singular microphone, and they have really tight harmonies. 
That's that's um, pretty much all that I had into this episode. Yeah. So, so five. <laughs> all right. Yeah, one. I would I wouldn't say that's completely incorrect. Um, I would say that I knew a little bit that like I could I could name like probably four or five of their songs, and I understood that they were important. Mm-hmm. I had no concept of how important it was the how was kind of one of those things that that really got into but okay um probably though that i'm i'm out of five as again i i had no um i had no qualifier on which to base other than like I guess they were popular. Yeah. And I kind of always just lumped them as, just, oh, they were just one of the many groups from Motown in the 60s. Boy, was I wrong about that. They were not just some band from Motown. They were the band. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Like, like holy crap so we uh one of the things that's been so interesting throughout this podcast is is learning about uh number one hits it's something that i kind of took for granted that just like oh yeah you know all the great artists have number one hits it's it's not that hard to have a number one hit and mm-hmm. one of the most interesting things i've learned is like actually there are tons of great classic groups that don't have a number one song. And that most bands uh, are happy just to have one. Two, man, if you get like three or four, that's like you're in a legend status. It's really hard to get anything past that. And I'm going to guess that they did. He did. Um, <laughs> in the uh, in about a let's see a six year period, they had twelve number one hits. Oh my goodness! Twelve. It, okay, so at that point, the only person beating them that we've talked about is the Beatles. Um, I do know that Elvis has more than that. Okay, Madonna has oh. more. Oh, I wouldn't expect Madonna. Um, Rihanna, you know. Rihanna, okay. We don't have to talk about that. Um, Mariah Carey has more, but it's like all these names are. I mean, they're the names. they're the top of the top. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In fact, I can even I can even pull up a, a definitive list. Right, but a lot of the bands that we talk about, I mean, your favorite bands, your four yeah. favorite bands together can't beat that. Yeah, the Beatles definitely are at the top. They've got uh, 20. Yeah, so the Supremes to have 12? Oh, uh, the Supremes have, uh, they are tied with Madonna for 12. Wow. Michael Jackson has 13. Oh my goodness. Oh, Rihanna man. has 14. Elvis has 18. 
Mariah Carey has 19, and the Beatles have 20. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize it was that close. I thought I thought the Beatles were just millions of light years ahead. No, but the again, one of the things that makes not only what they did, but the Supremes, what they did so incredible was the short amount of time that they did it in. Some of these other artists like uh like Michael Jackson and Madonna and uh Rihanna, Mariah Carey, they were able to a lot of those over about a twenty year period. Uh, like there's there's a couple of decades in between their first and last number one. And Which Supreme again is, is impressive, but I would say that that's a little bit easier to do than it mm-hmm. is to just like storm collect them all in such a short amount of time. Yeah, I mean you kind of have to rule the radio at that point. You really do. And then, yeah, then you put on top of the fact that uh, the Supremes and the Beatles were having their hits at literally the same time. In (laughs) fact, the thing that often happened would be that they were the ones that would knock each other off of the top spot. That's kind of, that's kind of cool. Not long ago, I watched uh, on YouTube, like a super cut of, uh, all the number one hits of the 60s and it's like the first like three years of the 60s it's it's embarrassing and sad it's I would say that even dark today's pop landscape the 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 pop world of 60 61 and 62 and even most of 63 is uh is pretty horrifying well, again, the reason the that the Beatles were such a huge thing was because they breathed life into the music industry again. But then once you hit sixty four, pretty much a a battle between the Beatles and the Supremes. And if it's not the Supremes, it's someone else from Motown. And then other people are just lucky to kind of get in and get something. Get within the top five, yeah. Yeah, now, in a way, this is also going to be a bit of a episode on Motown, although I'm going to try and, and not do that as much, because that's going to be something that will be perfectly suited for um, our music sub-series. I'll definitely do, uh, when we get to that time period, an entire episode on Motown. That'll be years from now. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will be. But hey, I'm in this for the long game. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so yeah, Motown, you, you kind of do have to give a little bit of context because, um, Motown existed before the Supremes, but Motown lasted because of the Supremes. Hmm. Okay. Like they, they were, they were the stars that helped make Motown the big juggernaut that it was in the sixties. So, what was Motown like before then? So, Motown was still fairly new by by the time. It was established in 1959 mm-hmm. um, by Barry Gordy, who, 
amazingly enough, is still alive. He's like in his nineties at this point. Oh wow! But not one of the most influential and powerful people in music uh, history. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy discovered and and personally tutored Michael Jackson. Oh, like he's the one that that discovered and signed the Jackson Five. Oh and my! Much, and much of Michael Jackson's musical tutelage pretty much came from uh, being Barry Gordy's shadow. It's kind of uh, a knock on his belt. Yeah. Well, and then uh, and then add Stevie Wonder to that list. Yeah, we talk, there's, we, there's we, another one. Oh my goodness! We talked about uh, Barry Gordy and Motown a lot in our uh, our Stevie Volume Two episode. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Um, but then, yeah, Marvin Gaye and uh, The Temptations, The Four Tops, Smokey Robinson, and The Miracles. Although he didn't discover them, because part of the reason he put Motown together was to give a place a home to Smokey Robinson and part of the deal was that Smokey got to be the vice president of the company of the label mm. so um, but still they were the ones that gave them their first big hit with Shop Around and then they, they got a couple of other early uh, strong artists and records like uh, Barrett Strong with Money That's What I Want and uh, the Marvelettes, please, Mister Postman. Um, that was, I believe, please, Mister Postman was the f- was the first Motown number one single. That makes sense. It's pretty. But, it's a pretty recognizable song. Oh yeah, and so they were definitely on the rise, but they were still, you know, they were not a major, powerful force until the Supremes came in. And once the Supremes started their run, that's skyrocketed up to where pretty much, as far as a label, no one could really compete with them as far as pure hit-making power. Okay. At least for the 60s. Yeah. And even then, it was, there was one dominant label. Motown is so unique in the fact that, like, it's the one label that everybody knows, mm-hmm. but at the same time, a lot of people don't know that it's a that it's a label. There's so nowadays people talk about Motown as if it's a genre. I mean, people don't say, "I want to listen to EMI music. I want to listen to Atlantic music. I want to listen to uh, Electra music." Well, of course, there's there's a reason for that, but the people do say, "I want to listen to Motown." And you know exactly what that sounds like, what that means, and it's it's no other label has quite, except I guess you know again maybe some of the some of the metal labels, but even still that it doesn't conjure a specific sound. Yeah, not like true. in the way that Motown does. That is true. There's just something about about that time period and what they were able to accomplish and the continuity and yet at the same time uh, range of talent that they were able to produce that made something that was a definitive sound a definitive look 
a definitive spirit and soul to the music itself. It's kind of a, it's kind of something that won't really happen ever again. No, it's, it was a, it was a, it was a once, it was a one-time thing. Because mm-hmm. again, something like that can really only happen in the early days of pop music. Yeah. It's the same way why there can't ever be another Beatles or even really another uh, Supremes. Mm-hmm. It's just bands realize the music market like they did back then. There's there's yeah. too many genres, too many wild different tastes, too many niche uh, bands and genres. Like it's just there's no one thing that the large mass of people agree on musically. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> and that's not to say that there weren't niche recordings back then, but definitely not even a fraction of what it is today. Oh, yeah. I mean, all you have to do is just get a, get in a quiet room and hit record now. Yeah, unless you listen to country or jazz or and again those people tended to make up a bit of the minority what was mainly being listened to the large majority of people listened to top 40 pop radio wow and so so weird to think about no one does that and it wasn't that crazy of competition yet in fact the big part of the competition was when when the Beatles came Mm-hmm. And it just it completely changed the way that people uh, were and released music. Albums didn't really mean anything until then. It was all about because it's all about radio play. Mm-hmm. FM radio didn't exist back then. Ooh yeah. FM radio was made was to to support album bands. It's where you get AO, AOR radio, which is stands for album only rock. So, Wait, so they perfect. so would they play stuff from the album, or was that designed to play? Yeah, the that's whole album? that. It's on those types of stations. That's something like Stairway to Heaven or Freebird could be a radio hit. Ah, uh, because they play the full length stuff. Yeah. And it's where sometimes like a steep cuts on records that maybe perhaps weren't really singles can can find a popularity. But that wasn't a thing yet here in the Supremes. No, that didn't come till like like sixty nine or seventy. Oh wow! Um, really, when rock kind of, I would say Zeppelin was a huge part of that because yeah. they didn't really release singles. And yet, how do we make them a big radio band? Well, let's let's have a format where they can play their stuff without having to soullessly promote it through the industry. Yeah, and some of their some of their biggest songs are some of their longest. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's that's a tangent for another day. Just to say that, like, they really had a, a firm grasp on the entire consciousness not just in america but in the world uh the supremes were truly groundbreaking um they were the first star female singers 
Wow. As far as in the pop world. And as well as uh, the first big superstar uh, American artists. I mean, that is so weird to think about. Yeah. I mean, they broke down just about every barrier that was that existed at that point. They wow. have a. Their album, uh, Supremes A Go-Go, was the first uh, album by a female artist or a female group to uh, go number one on the bill. Oh, boy. Their, um, one of their songs, uh, Love, was the first song in the UK to go to number one by a female artist. It's... You know, they were they were big time. Uh, at one point, they had five singles go to number one in a row. Oh. In <laughs> a row. Oh. Just, it's incredible. Again, it's incredible just to say you have five, but five in a row? Man. There's oh, only man. There's only one other artist that's ever beaten that. And in a way, Whitney Houston's is even more crazy because it's her first. She had her first seven. Ooh, like her very first single went to number one, and then she had seven number ones in a row. the The Supremes Man, like wasn't there. It wasn't their first one, but still. But what's crazy is they did five in a row, had a little bit of a lull, and then they had four in a row after that. Oh boy! So they had a they had a run of five and a run of four. I'm, you know, it'd be great to have a run of one. Yeah, but man, a run of five songs, and that's like that's a that's a period of time where people are listening to that song the most Mm -hmm. out of every song ever that at that time they're listening to that song the most and it's your song five times in a row oh my goodness like how long did that last was that like uh that was about about over a span of about a year and a half oh boy yeah, usually singles you 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 span singles out between like three or four months because you don't want them competing with each other. So oh oh, oh geez, so they really did rule the airways. Yeah, um, sing back in the '60s, singles did not ever debut at number one. That was not something albums didn't debut. That's something that didn't really start to happen until like the seven mid '70s where things would debut at number one. So how how would that not happen? So because pr- pretty much just things would, would get a slow climb. Just because distribution was different back then, not everything was able to be released at the same time in the country around the world. Uh, good point. So, you know, you would have, you would, you would start a record in certain places and it would popularity as time went. That's how movies were back then as well. It, back then, the opening weekend was not the most important thing for a box office projection. It was all about slowly opening across the country, and you get, you know, usually your biggest weekend would probably be like halfway into its run. 
Well, you kind of build build the hype for it, I guess. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until like the the eighties and nineties that they changed that to where, and and really album release is the same thing. Like you look at you know a lot of big number one albums of the last twenty years, usually they debut at number one and then they immediately fall the next week. Is that is that now a necessity of the music industry, you would say, to release Well, yeah, because, because now promotion is, you know, we promote the album a ton before it comes out. Rather, back in the day, you would just get an announcement one day, hey, the new al- album or song by so-and-so is out right now. There wouldn't be these months and months of interviews going, yeah, we're working on a new album. It's going to be even better than our last. It's going to sound like our first couple records. And like, <laughs> you know, you don't really... And then they release the cryptic 10-second teaser. And, like, it's just – that wasn't a thing back then. You just just kind of would all of a sudden notice on the radio, oh, hey, that's the new Supreme song. I haven't heard that before. And then the DJ say, that's the brand-new song by the Supremes. It's out now. Go get it. And that's just – that's the way – because there was no internet. You know, they didn't – Usually when you were on TV, that was after the song became a hit, not to try and make it a hit. Oh. See, that's a, this is a whole different ball game. Yeah, you're not going to go on TV unless you already have a hit. Because it's promoted hit record. Mm. Instead of hey, go pay your money and just cross your fingers, hope it's good. You're not going to have live debuts of things on TV or in concert in the 60s. Live live debut. Oh, so so there was none of this, hey, we just wrote this song, it's going to be on our next single, let's just try it out. Again, it's, except for like flukes, like say like with Ray Charles, what I'd say that we talked about last week. You wouldn't play it live until the single was out. Yeah, he never he's because remember he said that his typical policy was that he never tested things for audiences. That was just a random thing that just happened to evolve in a different way. And and that was typical. Well, again, jazz in like the jazz world, it was it was a little different just because the whole nature of things was improvisational. Mm-hmm. But. As far as like for more like traditional like record releasing, no, you don't typically uh, try things out, new material. You usually studio test it first, release it, find out whether people are into it, and then you play it. You don't get any of the road testing that way, though. You don't get any of those really good debut albums. Well, usually, again, albums was not the focus. It was singles. Uh, it's true. Usually albums back then were compilations of singles you already released. Now, in the 60s, it was a bit more, but they were still, again, collections of songs. The studio was still considered the most important avenue, rather than... totally foreign. Yeah, it's... And I promise, all of this is building context for the Supremes. Okay, okay, okay. Um, So... Um, in fact, let's 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 just jump in. Let's talk about who the Supremes even are. Well, Diana Ross is one of them. 
Yes, obviously she's the most uh, famous Supreme. She's the Supreme Supreme. <laughs> okay. Yeah, everyone knows Diana Ross. Um, but we've got... Tip- typically, there's three people in the Supremes at any time. At the very beginning, and on a couple of the first recordings, there were four Supremes. Mm-hmm. But traditionally, there's three, but that doesn't mean it's always been the same three. Um, the two main other Supremes, in fact, there's there's only one that is what, the constant Supreme, and that is Mary Wilson. Mary Wilson, I feel like I know that name, maybe. Did she ever have like a solo career? Not that I know of. She might have, though. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe it's just because Mary and Wilson. Maybe there's somebody else who has the name Mary Wilson. I don't know. It could have been that she went off and did stuff on her own. I didn't. I didn't get to that point in my research. Okay. Um, but she is one of the founding members, and uh, she stayed with them because the, so Diana Ross left the Supremes in the seventies to do seventy to go on a solo career, but the Supremes still trucked on after, although they didn't get another number one after she left. Ooh, that's important. But Mary stayed with them the whole time. Florence Ballard was the other founding member of the Supremes, but she stayed up until 67 when Barry Gordy fired her for uh, constantly being late and unprofessional due to alcoholism. Yeah, that... uh... That that's something you don't look for in a bandmate. Well, I wouldn't say it's completely her fault, though. I would say that Barry and Diana kind of drove her to it. Oh, but we'll get Uh-oh. more into that when I talk about their story. Oh, okay. Uh, but then she was replaced by uh, Cindy Birdsong, and there are two songs on our. Uh, list that we're going to talk about where it uh, is Cindy instead of Florence. Is that is that her real name, Birdsong? Is that just a stage name? Because that's huh? a really fortunate name. I know. Um, it is. Yeah, Cynthia Ann Birdsong. What's that? Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Yep. I trust Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it's way wrong, but hey. Again, the only thing that I tend to trust Wikipedia on is uh, is chart position. Yeah, that's that's fair. You can't so, really make that kind of stuff up. But yeah, so Diana Ross, she was not originally the leader of the Supremes. In fact, there really wasn't meant to be a leader. It was meant to be divided equally. There wasn't supposed to be a lead singer. Hmm. And um, Diana was actually the last member to join. And she was viewed by the rest of the group as probably the least skilled singer of the three. What? Which I will say that the other two members Florence and Mary they're more like traditional like blues gospel singers where they kind of have more powerful belting R&B 
uh, vocal styles. Mm-hmm. And Diana Ross definitely has more of a smooth pop voice. Ah, so that kind of helps with the uh, pop chart position. Yes, and that's what Barry Gordy keyed in on. It's because the first couple years that they were signed, they were not doing well. In fact, one of their nicknames was the No-Hit Supremes, which is one of the most ironic things ever. Mm. Um, they, Because they, when they formed, they were still in high school. Oh, wow. And they got, they kind of cut their teeth by, uh, by performing in talent competitions. And specifically, um, before they were called the Supremes, they were called the uh, the primettes because they were the support group for a male vocal group called the primes, which ended up becoming the temptations, which is one of the biggest, uh, groups on Motown. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. And so, um, when the temptations got signed, uh, they kept trying to get a record deal, but Barry Gordy would say, you know, come back when you've graduated high school. But they kept doing so well on these little talent show circuits and kept pestering him enough to where he was just like, fine. Kind of the same way Stevie Wonder was able to get a record deal, just by annoying Barry Gordy enough to where he's just like, fine, if they'll make you leave me alone, I'll give you a record deal. <laughs> but he said on one condition, and so he gave them a list of names, and um, Florence was the one that decided on the Supremes, and Diana Ross hated it. <laughs> but That's quite ironic. I know. There's lots of great ironies here. <laughs> so they, uh, they signed in like 61 or 62, and it was a rough first couple years. Like, not even chart, not even popping on the Billboard 200 bad. Mm. And then, like, in 63, they started to get okay chart success. Like, they would get, like, in the 90s and the 80s. Nothing great, but at least kind of a step in the right direction. And then that's when Barry Gordy stepped in and was just like, okay, we need to make some changes. Biggest one being, Diana, you're the lead singer now. And also, they got a new group of um, a trio by the name of Holland Dozier Holland and once they started writing songs they went from having songs in like the 90s and the 80s to being at number one. Oh my goodness okay it's I, I forget that that's how Motown worked mm-hmm it's and all, so it's all the writers, you get the right writer, you're doing great. Oh yes, yeah. so Holland Dozier Holland, that that trio, you got to give them credit as maybe some of the greatest songwriters of all time. Oh yeah, because they weren't just writing for the Supremes; they were writing for the Temptations, they were writing for Marvin Gaye, they were writing for Martha and the Van. Looks like there's they some wrote, Martha Jackson here. Uh huh. They wrote "Please, Mr. Postman." Like these, these guys are, and they weren't just people that like sat in a room and wrote songs and then uh, producers would just hand them out to whoever they wanted to. Mm -hmm. 
they would write songs specifically for specific artists. I heard it described mm-hmm. as like they were tailors. They would tailor a song to whoever needed it. And they knew how to write. They knew the difference on how to write a song for the Supremes as, say, the Four Tops or the Temptations. Hmm. So, That's kind of important when you're trying Yeah, it wasn't, to, it wasn't like how you have in some of the – and I think that was part of, again, part of Motown's success – was that they they weren't just like creating these this vast bank of songs and then kind of just going yeah whoever sings it sings it I don't care I just write the song yeah yeah that 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 does make sense and mm-hmm. Taylor is a good way of putting it because a nice perfectly tailored suit is way different than a nice suit on a a nice figure of a human being. If you get the if you get the wrong mismatch, you can get something that's kind of a a bomb. It's a bad fit. Yeah. Just like what in the world? Yeah. And so I guess it's kind of like that with songs, and you see that a lot with uh, uh, people covering songs, like covering a great song. Uh, the Foo Fighters covering um, what was it? Uh, River Deep, Mountain High. That was like. The number one, or maybe number two, I think it was number one, I Can Take a Tina Turner song. Yeah. And the Foo Fighters, of course, they're fantastic. I mean, anyone who, who is you're thinking of... is going to sing their praises till the cows come home, right? And one of the greatest artists in rock history, certainly the greatest now. And you put those two together, it's the worst Foo Fighters song. You're, you're, uh, you're, thinking of, uh, you're actually thinking of Deep Purple. No, I thought Foo Fighters did. It was Deep Purple that had the horrible. Okay, time. I feel like Foo Fighters. What? No, let's find out. Although yeah, I no, think deep... they should, though. Could you imagine Dave Grohl screaming through that? No, because remember, Deep Purple did like a weird thirteen-minute oh, version of it with, with. They did, but Foo Fighters did another one that was like it was like a cover and it was really bad. It but was Kids in America. Way, it's still okay. It's still the same idea. Yeah, and it's like great song, great band. You put them together, not so much. And so when you have somebody who's writing songs for you, like artists do nowadays, they write songs for themselves. Then you can you get something that's really mm-hmm. special because it's 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 something that wouldn't show up anywhere else in the entire scope of music. Anyway, so that's that's good that they have people writing their stuff for them and obviously I, I imagine that contributed to their success oh yeah they um you you have to almost look at holland dozier holland as part of the supremes mm. because of their 12 number ones they wrote 10 of them and yeah. they and again they wrote it for them not just for anyone in motown and you know, producers or Barry Gordy to kind of to divvy them up at will. It was, you know, they were they were specifically partnered with with the Supremes to write hits that would be best suited for them. And so and so they did it. Um so a big a big 
reason for the Supremes being successful is they got the hits. They got the songs. But another big reason why they exploded was was their look, was their presentation. Never before, really, had um, female pop stars presented themselves in quite the way the Supremes did, as far as, like, they wore these these big, extravagant dresses, very classy, very upscale, um, extravagant wigs, lots of makeup, you know. Straight out of the Great Gatsby kind of look. Yes, very glamorous. Yeah. But not like in a in a cheesy or sleazy way. It looked legit. Yes, they they looked like they had lots of class. Yeah. And one of the things that again set Motown apart from a lot of other labels is that they had a lady there that was on payroll that her main job was to uh teach and coach all of their musicians how to behave, dress, and act in a very certain sophisticated way. So, so they that all, way... Kind of, they all kind of got the same training. It wasn't like, oh, hey, this is part of your personality. You should act like this. No. And of, of course, you know, each band kind of got to add their own little things that made them unique. Mm -hmm. But overall, like, they would... She would go on tour with them and be like, this is how you're going to... This is how you need to eat when you're at a restaurant. This is how you need to walk. This is how, like, even when you're out in public, not on stage, you have to exude the same class and 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 refinement that you do on stage. That can get tiring. Yeah, but again, it worked. That's as well as uh, the Supremes were really among the first ones not not specifically them, but they were the most successful with it about bringing and choreography to music. That was not really like doing these dance moves. I mean, maybe the closest thing you had up till then was uh, was Elvis shaking his hips. Wow. And I guess if you wanted to go even further back, you would go to like people like Fred Astaire and you know the people that would do all the tap dancing. But that also wasn't like that was its own thing. So you're not talking about like like musical. musical no, yeah, it would almost be like show tunes way. This was this was just normal pop music. They would have true. like they would they would have these sways and they would have these hand claps and. Was, it was a visually uh, stimulating show as well as uh, moving to the music. Mm -hmm. you immediately uh, trace the line of Michael Jackson and Prince and all of Motown and the Supremes of where it's not enough to just stand up there and sing and play your instruments. You need to do something that's going to um, give them something great to look at and something that is infectious enough that they're going to want to do it in the audience as well. That's that's kind of the the Lemmy Kilmister approach is, you know, people don't want to go to a show and see like some random guy. They want to go and, and see someone who looks like they're from another planet and like. <laughs> By extension, they want to go and and 
see a show. You know, they don't want to just go and listen to music. You can listen to music on your record player, right? But you want to go and be entertained and, of course, you know, see the Supremes and watch them do the moves and whatever. And it's, and it's, it's a whole other ball game when you're in the audience of a um, artist who knows how to take advantage of that visual aspect and that audience participation aspect. And I mean, of course, like when you're up there swaying with the music, clapping your hands or whatever, like the audience is going to feel it too. And it's, it's, it's infectious when you get a good beat. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it all adds up to this incredible, uh, this incredible package that the Supremes had. And so, yeah, once, once that ball started with, uh, uh, where'd our love go with our first number one after that mm-hmm. unstoppable until the end oh wow so they they just they just steamrolled the whole competition pretty much i mean again no one motown came even close to the number of hits that they had even stevie wonder who and at the end of the day has had 10 Nine of those were after he left Motown. He only had one while he was with Motown. Oh, wow. So, obviously, they're pretty big. I mean, what's that tour schedule like? Because you're only recording singles, so it's not like you're in the studio for, like, a long period of time. Well, the thing is is that you make three albums a year. (laughs) Oh, boy. Like, they they had in six... They had four albums come out in 1965. How do you do that? I mean, you're 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 the biggest band on radio. Everybody wants to see you. You're you're selling out all the arenas and whatever. How do you? Well, again, no. It was an arena tour back then. What? Arena arena tours didn't uh, happen until like the late 60s, early 70s. Okay. In fact, you could say that that's another one of the things that the Beatles pioneered was playing. They're the first ones to play at a uh, at a stadium with Shea Stadium. But even then, didn't fully exploit that before completely um, stepping away from touring and live performing. Well, they still got a tour across the states, you know. Yeah, them theaters. Um. A lot of people will point to uh, Led Zeppelin kind of being the first true like arena, mm-hmm. um, and the and the Stones got there pretty quick in the seventies as well. But um, I'll, I'll give you a good example though. Uh, one of the busy things that they did in '65 was when Baby Love hit number. That was the first time that any. Um, Motown artists had ever hit number one in England. And so they were like, oh, let's go do a tour. So what they did was they almost did, it was almost like a promotion of the entire Motown label. The Supremes were the headliners, but they also had Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, uh, Martha and the Vandells, the, um, the Funk Brothers, a couple of other people. Like it was, it was almost like a, a big, uh, 
this is this is all of this is the finest selection of Motown we have. And it was this giant bill of like six or seven acts that would play for like 15, 20 minutes each. Oh, I was about to say it sounds like a festival, but 15, 20 minutes, I don't know. Well, that's how that's how long concerts were back then. When the Beatles would play, they would play like 30 minutes maximum. Oh, my goodness. That's just, again, it's the 60s, even compared to the 70s, is almost like night and day difference. Yeah. Gosh, because, I mean, like, by the 80s, you were having full three-hour performances. Mm-hmm. Even by the 70s, you were. Yeah, I guess so. When you when you talk about bands like Pink Floyd, that's got the whole day long um, multimedia blimp uh, presentation and, and everything with the pyrotechnics and whatever, fifteen twenty minutes. That's like how long it takes to sound check. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's because you just when you're when you're up there, you're playing whatever your hit on the radio is not going back i mean maybe you throw in one or two songs that are kind of like some prior hits for the most part you're playing this is what's out on the radio right now this is what's on our new record right now go buy it after the concert's over oh and that's the other thing too is you can fill 15 20 minutes with six or seven songs because all your songs are like two to three minutes oh yeah yeah, there's no there's no five minute songs. There's no extended guitar solos. No jam sections. Again, you'll you'll have that in like a in a jazz group, but not in pop music. Hmm. And in the '60s, rock music and pop music are intertwined as just about the same thing. So really, we we have to thank jazz for the super long songs that we have now. Yeah, I mean that's that's where the idea comes from. Cool. That is weird. I, that, I, that, I, that I apologize if I'm acting like this is all like a, like I assumed that this was common knowledge. I had no idea. I had no idea that it was like <laughs> oh rock music was just basically pop music and there wasn't like some underground like rock movement at this time. The underground was, rock artists were just the less successful ones. I just I just figured that like there was some like brewing social musical movement somewhere in like That's why I, I would say that like real rock and roll the rock and roll that we think of now was really born in like 67 68. That's when that's when rock was able to kind of at least enough untangle itself from pop music to where it could it could exist without having to be uh, top forty. And again, once you get FM radio in there, once you once the album is just as significant of a statement as a single does, mm. um, again, you got to thank the Beatles for all that. So, but anyway, again, we're we're focusing on the Supremes. Yes, sorry. And we keep we. <laughs> no, my apologies. It's just a lot to talk about. It is. It also just shows we gotta we gotta talk about the '60s more often. Yeah, we do.
So, um, 64 was the breakout year for the Supremes and the same year that the Beatles did. It's, again, you can see this really interesting parallel between the two groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, again, I, I know I'm talking about the Beatles. It's really the only group you can even compare them to as far mm-hmm. as the time period as well of success that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, so 65, 66, I mean, just, just, um, ownership of the pop charts. And it was in 67 that, that all of the tensions really started to mount within the group. Things that happened was, um, Diana Ross and Barry Gordy becoming involved. And this is, and it, this was not a secret affair. This was, this was very public. They never got married together. And oh, wow. we're, we're together for like 15 years. Hmm. So it was not one of those things where it was, it was a very kind of like out there known fact that they were together. And of course, once that happens and you see you you put the two and two together of man, the Supremes have all these hits and oh also Diana Ross uh with the head of the label, of course then people are gonna start wondering, well, are the Supremes preferential treatment? Yeah. Are they being given priority with the songwriters of going Whatever your best songs are, make sure you get them to the Supremes. They're the most money spent on marketing and and this and that. And then even within the Supremes, a lot of the bitterness between them was you know, Diana Ross was very much more highly favored than the other two. But between Mary and Florence. And Florence in particular she was the founding member. She was mm-hmm. the one that recruited Mary and Diana to mm-hmm. join this group. And she felt like she was of the group. And at this point, all lead vocals had pretty much gone away from them. And even then, like the need for background vocals was becoming less and less necessary. It really was almost like a that the other two were in the group while Diana pretty much just sung lead by herself. Hmm. So, um, it was be- it was these things that started um, Florence on her uh, road to addiction. Okay. You know, obviously, there's, I'm sure, other factors, stuff from her past childhood, other emotion, but that, the thing that, that completely drove was this, was this fact of just like, this is my band, it's been completely taken away from me. And mm-hmm. I can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. As well as, you know, I'm sure trying to cope with that intense level of fame and, and stardom. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, they were. They were in unprecedented. That 
that especially as female artists. That's a weird situation just all around. Mm-hmm. Nothing kind of about stressful. it was normal. Just stressful. And so I mean see that that's understandable. That you would you would look for a way to just de stress. There were several periods where she wouldn't show up to recording sessions, and so they would get a, a temporary replacement. Um, and then one day in 1967, she showed up to a show, and she was very drunk. And not only did Barry Gordy fire her right on the spot, but he already had her replacement ready to perform that night. Oh, my. So it was one of those things that they had been planning for this because they knew it was it was going to be necessary. Um, that's where uh, Cindy Bird's song comes in. The, they found out that they had been grooming her to take over for Florence for a year. Wow! And and this just this was kind of almost like the 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 incident that they were waiting for to, to justify going. Okay, she's gone. Did the audience even notice? Um, maybe I don't know. There's no record of whether they did, but. Again, honestly, at this point, it probably didn't matter because Diane they had they had so constructed to where Diana was the was the focus, and that was made even more apparent when they started stopped going by the Supremes and started going by Diana Ross and the Supremes. Mm. I mean, you want to just talk about rubbing it in their faces? Yeah, Diana has never been super open about her time with the Supremes. She's very closely guarded the narrative of that story, and a lot of people speculate it's because she doesn't want all of the inner machinations to come out. It could just be that she just doesn't want to talk about it, but it's uh-huh. it's a it's a almost open story that, that Diana was was almost kind of like a little like an evil mastermind throughout this whole thing. Oh wow. Cuz she she really is the world's first pop diva. <laughs> oh. And everything that it, that that entails. Before Aretha, before before anybody. Like you think of the the archetypal uh pop diva Diana Ross pretty much created that role. Jeez. That's that's a lot, but also it's at the same time that's that's significant in the sense that she was also the first great female pop superstar. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge deal. Yeah, that's true. That's that's a I mean that's true, but I mean if you're, I don't know, I don't. People tend to handle fame in very extreme ways, it seems. I mean, because we talked about Pearl Jam and how they handled that. And, of course, you can look, you can look at just about any super famous group. And, and either they run with it. Like, I think the Beatles did a fantastic job. Like, get... Turning their turning their fame into more interesting artistic 
movements. Or look at Guns N' Roses that just completely crumbled underneath the weight of it. Oh my goodness, yeah. Talk about a crash and burn. Like, there, it's it's never like they kind of coast. And no. so that's just that's what that's what happens, unfortunately. Yeah. And so I guess this is the first instance of it. It's not maybe maybe it's not so much she created it, but she was the first to exhibit those characteristics. Yeah. So, um, also at about eight is when uh, Holland Dozier Holland uh, leave Motown. Mm. Constant uh, royalty disputes with the label. But and they, so they we still have two uh, number ones to go. Yeah. So, uh, but it was the the writing kind of was on the wall at that point and. Ever since like '66, the the whole master plan at the end was to get Diana into a solo career because it's it's a lot easier to manage a group of one than it is a group of three. The master plan. And here's the thing: once Diana went solo, she got six more number ones. Jeez, so she's okay. she's got eighteen total that she sung on. <laughs> wow. That is impressive. Yeah. But then if you use the same argument with, like, say, Paul McCartney, then that extends him into, like, the upper 20s, even maybe to 30. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, he's probably, like, 33 or something. Crazy. Yeah. No one, no one's going to touch Paul McCartney. He, yeah. As far as just sheer number one hits. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, she, she definitely... Like, it wasn't a thing where that ended up being the wrong move for her. I think mm-hmm. that the Supremes went as far as they could go without having to almost completely reinvent themselves. Mm-hmm. Which, that's not to say that they couldn't have, but it was unlikely. She left at the time where she needed to, and, like, she instantly stepped into into superstar solo territory. I had no idea that that was such a weird story. I had always figured that it was like Diana Ross and the Supremes. Like, oh, hey, we have the Supremes. We have Diana Ross somewhere else. Let's put them together. Look at this cool new act that we have. And it was all amicable and everything was sunshine and rainbows. But I guess not. Nope. That really sucks, but it makes for an. Interesting but also at the same story. time, it's it's the classic story. It is, yeah. In a way, and... in a way, it gives the intrigue to, um, to the music. But yeah. um, unfortunately, of the classic three members, Diana Ross is still alive today. Oh wow! So she's still, and she's still. She's, wow. I believe. I think she's getting close to 80 at this point. 77. Once again, according to Wikipedia. So Mm -hmm. how much do you trust that? (laughs) Yes. Unfortunately, Florence Ballard died young due to her complications from alcohol. She ended up uh, having Mm. systematic heart failure at 32. And then Mary Wilson just died last year. But 
but died from what I read very suddenly. Like she wasn't someone that had been sick for a while and was planning on releasing some music last year before she was, uh, before she suddenly passed away. Huh. So yeah, and then and Cindy Bird's song is still alive, but so, even so I, even though she sang on some great records, she's never held in the same status as the 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 classic Supremes. I guess the. Mm, I guess the uh, the splitting of the band was not was so. Um, emotionally charged that they never really now no they only got they only got got back together on one occasion okay and it was and even again i don't think florence ballard was part of it it was it was to celebrate i think like maybe the 25th anniversary of motown so yeah at that point i think florence had already passed away oh yeah and they uh, they did a a couple like redux versions of some of their songs, but that's the only time that they've ever performed together since then. But accor- until a lot of that dirty laundry was aired, according to the public, it was kind of like this big like celebration, like almost like Diana Ross was graduating. Like it was this, they, they made this, their last concert was like this big deal where they announced that, you know, our, you know, our, our lovely sister Diana is, is stepping off into her solo career. This is going to be her final call. Have a big celebration and send her off well, and we're going to miss you. And we just hope that you're going to have great success. Yeah. It, it, it looks like uh, she was replaced by uh, Jean Terrell. Yeah. I mean, there's also some other line of changes till 77 or whatever, but yeah, I assume it's not the same. No. And I mean, I think it's telling that they didn't have a number, another number one after she left. They did. They did better than most people probably would have guessed, but not near enough to, to at all hold any kind of candle to what came before. Well, because it's Diana Ross and the Supremes. Yeah, it makes the Supremes sound like they're they play second fiddle. Yeah, I mean, you, there's there's a little bit you can get out of the out of the name recognition, but it's yeah, there was there's no way, and and they knew that. Yeah. I think I think that they, in a way, they almost they wanted her to leave at a time when the Supremes were still huge, before they got to the point to where it was. Uh, they they need if they were going to transition Diana successfully into a solo career, they had to do it while she was still in a way on top. She she had to have some momentum. Yes, and I mean right up to the very moment that she left, they still were having number ones. One of her number ones was a farewell song. Oh. That's so weird. Yeah, their last number one was the last single that they released with her and the last one she recorded with the Supremes. So could they have still like how long do you estimate? I know I'm I'm not asking like the the biggest historically 
uh, informed person as, as far as sixties music goes. No offense, but no, no, I wouldn't. If, I wouldn't claim that title anyway. If you if you had to estimate like how well the Supremes, or I should say Diana Ross and the Supremes, would have gone if Diana Ross stayed, I. I think that they probably could have been relevant for another couple years. But thing is, though, is she left in 70, and that was right when not just Motown, but, like, just all around music changed. Motown did not do well in the 70s, period. Hmm. Um, They had a a great start to the 70s because that's when the Jackson 5 came out. Uh, but yeah. once once they got into the seventies and and uh, and funk started to really take over and uh, and then disco and all that it was just everything that Motown kind of built their name on wasn't able to sustain itself. So, in a way, everything that made Motown successful also ensured that there would be, in a way, a shelf life. Because when you when you get so specific on how everything's going to sound and what kind of songs you're going to make, it makes it so hard to adapt when the times change. ACDC. Yeah, but that's one band. Not a, an entire when an entire label does that, uh, it's a lot more difficult. You know, it's why Stevie Wonder couldn't stay at Motown. He had to move on in order to reach his full creative maturity. He eventually had to move on. Um, you know these these artists that started off became even bigger in the seventies. Became bigger when they left Motown. Hmm. Wow. Okay. And it's because they were the ones that understood that they had to adapt, and that mm-hmm. there was going to be too much creative limits on what they could do if they stayed there. Because so- again. It's what made it's what made Motown successful in the first place, but also when when the time changes, they didn't have a lot of wiggle room. So the the TLDR being that it was it was fortunate for her. Diana yes, Ross, I think that she, she left. left she left at the exact right time, and I do believe that it was that that was intentional and calculated by them. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not to say that Motown was a failure in the 70s. They still, I mean, you know, the Jackson 5 was a was a good uh wave for them. Um they they had stuff that was popular in the in the 80s. I mean, a lot of uh Mo- Ross stayed on Motown during the 70s and she had like four of her six solo number ones during that time. It's just that you compare it to how many hits they had in the 60s, and it is a step down. Hmm. And so I think I think that she that she made the right decision. Whether or not she could have done it better as far as how she treated there's one of the more interesting things that I discovered learning this is actually how little official information there was. 
again, Diana Ross has not been super forthcoming about her own story living with uh it's almost like there's a lot of there's a lot of rumors. Obviously there's lots of stuff that's fact as far as how well they did, their impact, the songs. Um but then as far as a lot of the interpersonal stuff, it's it's kind of still one of those stories that hasn't been completely told yet. Mm. Yeah, well it's just there's a lot of sides and some of the sides are are no able no longer able to tell their side. There's no splashy m- memoir. Yeah, there there's no uh, some kind of monster uh, documentary crew, so mm-hmm. you can get Lars yelling expletives into the camera. Yeah, exactly what happens with the most colorful language. But just stalk. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that was like I don't I don't have a documentary that I watched. I don't have an audio book that I listened. To. Like I kind of had to piece together from just various different fringe sources of, and even again, a lot of that was just like, well, maybe this is how it happened. Maybe this is so. Like the the whole theory of maybe Diana Ross was the villain of the story. That's pure speculation by people. That's not confirmed. I'm not saying that that's what happened. It could be that she did everything she could. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I again, she has did that story very carefully. And whether again, it could be that that is the story or that there is something else under the surface. I don't know. That in of itself makes it intriguing. Yeah. Because that's how Aretha Franklin was as well. And it was interesting to learn that after she died, he finally got the permission. He, The guy that wrote her biography wrote two biographies. One that was partnership with her. And then he realized that that was not at all the real story. And then wrote the real one after she passed away. And so that, gave, that might happen. She had given her version of the accounts to make herself look as good as possible in the narrative. Scrub out all of the bad parts. Yeah, well, we would we would all like to do that. So, oh boy, this is this is a lot to take in. Yes, it is. And I I'd, think I'd like to digest this with some uh, some music as well. Yes, we will go ahead and take a break here. And when we come back, we are going to talk about the six supreme songs that we have picked for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everybody. Or at least everybody listening. Those of you who are not listening, I'm so sorry. But 
you don't have to hear this, so that's okay. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We've been talking about the Supremes and Diana Ross and Supremes, and a little bit less, but we've been talking about Motown in the 60s and all of that interesting, strange culture shock from what our, our music um, production is like today. And now it's time to actually talk about the six songs we have for this episode. Obviously, this is the Good Music Podcast, so at the end of the day, we're talking about some music. We want to listen to some stuff, listen to some, some good, awesome music, right? If you want to listen to these songs, which you definitely, definitely do, every episode, listen to the songs, right? You get something special out of it. Down in the description of every single episode, there's a link to Spotify playlist. It has not only these songs, but all the songs from all of the pre previous episodes and all the future episodes, if you're listening far into the future. On your way, scrolling down to the bottom of the list where these songs are, you might see some other interesting songs. We have an episode about that artist and about that song. We talk about that song, so be sure to check out that episode as well. All right, there's the whole intro. I think I did pretty good. Anyway, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of myself. I was about to introduce this with our last bad song, and then I realized, oh, that's wrong artist. We are starting <laughs> off with we're starting off with a with a Diana Ross of the Supreme song. So it looks like we're going to be jumping around in time. But I mean, this first song is such a banger that I could not put it. It is. It's, it's kind of like it's kind of like an introduction song because there's a lot of. Uh, it sounds autobiographical, but I don't know if it is. And maybe you, maybe you can clear the the information on that. But this is Love Child. Yeah. So this is uh, one of the two number ones not written by Holland Dozier Holland. Uh, this was actually written by Barry Gordy and a couple of his uh, producers, but Barry was the main songwriter on it. And there's nothing really quite like else like love child in their discography it's a very unique sounding song it's it's almost got a bit of a funk to it mm -hmm. and uh it's it doesn't have kind of that that smooth like pretty sounding motown sound to it it almost it it sounds very 70s yes oh my gosh it does when i first turned this on i'm like oh this is like pre-disco and you have those strings in the background that sounds so 70s and the little bell keys stuff yeah it's it sounds of a lot like almost like mid-70s jackson five i'm not familiar with jackson five but it does sound mid-70s yeah it's it sounds it sounds very like 73 74 mm. and so but yeah this was in 68 and even the uh, the rest of the songs on that album don't really sound like this. Although the album overall does sound very different than all of their uh, all of their other records. Mm. You can tell that that their that just popular music in of itself has changed a lot at this point. Yeah, that there's there is an attempt to kind of stay contemporary. Mm -hmm. And to uh, to adapt because I mean once you get to sixty eight in popular music that's that's really when all of the all of the the protest and the social conscious songs really start to come in. It's a lot of the hit songs start becoming less and less about you know baby baby I love you let's let's be together. It starts to you know talk about real issues that are happening in the world. 
Yeah. And so Love Child was a was an intentional attempt to kind of stay contemporary and not and because a lot of supreme i would say every supreme song just about up to that point was uh was not dealing with with controversial social subjects it was yeah. very much about it was very much sweet cutesy relationship even the breakup songs were just like oh i miss you so much you know oh you weren't good to me but you'll change like not anything like shocking or and that's that's kind of what made motown uh so bankable was that it was kind of like you knew what you were getting into mm-hmm. and so this is definitely a a left field type of song but i think that's also what makes it so good it's it's so weird because when you first listen to it, you're just like, ah, oh, yeah, cool, like disco esque feel, like man, love, comma child, like that. It has that feeling. Mm-hmm. But then when you actually listen to the words, it's like, oh, this is kind of like, I'm sorry, you know? Yeah. Know. It, it, it was weird listening to it the second time because the first time. It was like, yeah. And the second time it was like, oh. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um, is is this song at all biographical? Uh, no, because I don't believe that the, that the child that they had together had been born yet. Well, but is it of like, whoever wrote the song, is this like about them? No, no, no. This was, this was again, this was, this was an attempt to, to address social issues and and just and talk about like the the state of a lot of families and a lot of mothers and children that were in the harder streets of america about you know moms having to take care of kids without the dad being around and um and the and the difficulties that children in these situations you know the love child that was never meant to be and what that does to the emotional state of the child, this feeling of I was I wasn't planned, I wasn't wanted, but yet here I am, you know. It's 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 a strangely deep song thematically. Yeah. It's it's surprising how real it sounds. You know, it, 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 I don't, I don't know how to describe it, <laughs> but it sounds like the, the, the person who wrote this song is writing from their own experience. And it's like, that's good writing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, oftentimes there are some things that it's just, it's really, really hard to talk about if you didn't experience it. And there's some things where it's just absolutely impossible um, to, to genuinely talk about something in a believable manner if you hadn't experienced it. Mm-hmm. And I mean this, and I don't know what category this would fall under, <laughs> but it just seems like so believable, and that's why I asked: is like uh, who in the band, which like wrote this song, or like what writer is this? Because it sounds like it sounds like Diana Ross introducing herself, being like, "Oh yeah, this is like who I truly am, guys." And yeah. Uh, again, yeah, Barry Gordy was I am 
on top on top of the world. I don't know. Yeah, Barry Gordy was the main writer on this song, and there's there's nothing I found that says specifically it's about A, B, or Z person. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then just also musically, this song is just it's so different. It's got I love that verse hook. The the da 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 da. Ooh yeah, it's it's that's such a great hook, and again, it's just it's 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 got an edge and almost like a uh, there's a bit of an aggression to it. Again, about you compare it to other uh, Supreme songs, it's it's almost shocking how in your face it is. Lyrically and musically, mm-hmm. yeah, and that little that little call and response to the to the backing vocals. Mm-hmm. Now, um, something of note is that uh, Diana Ross is the only Supreme that uh, is on the song. The oh, background, so she did all the backing vocals. No. Sh- um, a vocal group called the Andantes did. Uh, what I mean is funky. that she was the only Supreme on this. And just it it just continues to show that like they were in a bad place emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was definitely a very uh, the way Mary Wilson interprets it was just like it's it was Barry Gordy's way of saying that y'all are replaceable. I can I can get anyone to sing these background vocals. Diana's the only one that really matters. Hmm. I can I can say this is a supreme song and have her be the only one on it and I'll still make it a hit song. That's not something you really want to hear. But again, it's it's one of those things where in hindsight when you realize that there was a that there was a end date in mind of her leaving, it's kind of just like, it's almost like you can think of this like, they're not really caring about keeping the band together because it's, they don't care if it does. The end goal is for it not to be together, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it shows that at this point, they're not really the Supremes anymore. Hmm. But that's a that's a way to start off <laughs> the the set. I know it's again to to have this this strange, unique sounding original, but at the same time, it's just like man, you're not going to find a better intro song to introduce than this because it's just it it slaps hard. That is so true, and this next one really does too. Yes, and and the next song is what really kind of introduces us to like classic Motown Supreme sound. So I was expecting to not recognize a single song. And I I kind of recognize this. And I don't know where, maybe somebody covered it. Oh, Phil Collins had a this version. Phil Collins had a very famous cover of this song. That might have been it. He uh in fact it was he his cover of it went to number one in the UK. So did this go to number one? Yes. This is another. This is another number one. This is this is one of those classic Holland Dozier Holland compositions. Yeah, because it definitely it sounds. I mean, obviously, the amount of time between the Supremes and, and Phil Collins is enough for music to add this, even pop 
to add like a level of aggression in general to music because it sounds a little bit more um i don't want to say pointed but it's like the way the vocals are delivered diana ross is very like smoothly singing this yeah and even in the phil collins version which phil collins doesn't have a very aggressive voice but it's it's less smooth it's a little bit more fun yeah and that's that also is just the natural timber of his voice diana ross just she just straight up that's just not her style Mm -hmm. is to add any grit or snarl to it she's very much a smooth singer Mm -hmm. and so but yeah it's i mean it's just it's pure pop but also just pure pure goodness uh, this was this was the song that started their second run of number ones, the one that started that run of four. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this this will start a, a string of number one singles. Mm-hmm. It's it's so danceable, like it, it like you kind of can't help but like just you, you like can't snap help but stand and, just, up and yeah, sway and like snap, you know. And uh, this was this was kind of like. Uh, with uh with Ray Charles with I've got a woman that started off as a gospel song. Um you it was it was literally called You Can't Hurry God. But it's not in the same as much of a complete lift like I've got a woman was where it's essentially the same song but replacing it with secular lyrics, but that's kind of where the initial inspiration was was from gospel. And that's what kind of gives it its it's it's pop and it's swing. Well, and and this song is a little bit more wholesome. Yeah. So that that certainly helps with the uh, reception. But I mean just I feel like just like everything in this song is just like every moment of it is like iconic. It, this is like a weird structure of a song. It's almost like there is no structure. Like they're just jamming. It's 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 a series of A and B sections. It's just a lot. It felt emotionally like it was building the whole time. Mm-hmm. And that's that's like the best way to to write a song, even like a short song. Like that's just a, that's just what you should do. Is just every moment should add to that like emotional, like yeah, yeah, and whatever that emotion is. Because, yeah, that's like, there's not even really, like, a verse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, there's there's those, there's that section before the chorus, and then you have, like, a, a bridge after that, but it's not really a bridge. It is, I never really thought about it, it is really weirdly structured. Mm-hmm. But yet, at the same time, it feels so natural. It's, it's not the, it's not the, uh, it's not the normal pop structure, no. which is weird that we're talking about basically pop music, and it's not the pop structure. Stru- See, that's that's what I like. Those are the kind of pop songs that I like the most. Are the ones that it's it's great pop hooks, but there's something at least one element about it that is out of the box. Yeah, it's it's breaking the rules without shoving it in your face. Yeah. Again, that's that's yes. something that that's something that I always loved about Queen was oh, that yeah. they're way more experimental than you realize, but the great thing is that a lot of the times you don't realize they're being experimental. 
because they make it sound so natural. All all of their experiments work. <laughs> yeah. And they're not they're not they're not so out there that you're just like, well, okay, why is it getting weird right now? Mm-hmm. You can make opera in the middle of your rock and roll song not sound weird, then you did something right. Well, I don't know. I mean, the first time you listen to Bohemian Rhapsody, it's kind of a little weird. But the second time, you're just like, oh, yeah. You're just you're just Take rolling it with it at that point. You know, all that stuff. Anyway, the Supremes don't do that, is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it is it is a little different. It's got a little it's got a little different spin. So next song, am I maybe love? Because you had you had name dropped this one in our previous section. Yes. So this was their this is their second number one. So this was part of that that first run of five. Ooh. And uh, this was their. This is surprisingly, this is actually their only number one in the UK. But it is the song that got them overseas, really making them the first uh, Motown and African-American artists to make it big overseas. Wow. Wow. And so, Baby Love, um, we got we got that song to thank for it. Mm-hmm. So this was on their this was on their second record. It's amazing to to see the improvement from record one to record two. Because record one is, I would say, one of their weakest ones. Just because you know, it's you can tell it's a group that hasn't completely solidified their identity. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, uh, Holland Dozier Holland hadn't really come in yet at this point, and so they didn't have the the benefit of having their songs. Mm-hmm. But then uh, you get to the second record. You've got Barry Gordy making a couple of fairly important changes, putting Diana Ross front and center. You've got the songwriting, but it's just like most people will consider that second record, Where Did Our Love Go, as being probably their best one. Hmm. I mean, it's got, it has three number ones, which that's another thing that they did first. It was the first time an album ever had three number one hits on it. Wow. That was pre-Beatles. Because even, well, well, again. Pre-Beatles, but before the, the Beatles did it. Yeah, because the thing with the Beatles at that time was that all their number ones were non-album singles. Because the way that they approached it was that they uh, they didn't want to put their singles on a record because then they felt like they were cheating their listeners out of money by they're like we already bought the single and now we're going to pay money to have something that also has that song I already bought on it. Mm-hmm. Sure. So. The, yeah, the model with the Beatles was usually let's make our our hits something that is its own thing, and then the albums is a collection of different songs. But now, of course, you know sometimes they would make the record and they were like, okay, we got to release this song as a single. Yeah, yeah. But if they they wrote a single, they didn't go, okay, now let's put this on the album to help fill it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 
that's a fair philosophy because it's you are kind of like cheating you're taking up you're taking up time people have already heard this song or whatever but i don't know i mean what what the what the supremes did obviously worked as well yeah uh it's that was just the way the beatles did mm. it but yeah so that that creates a situation where uh they were able to have the first album to have three number one singles on it. So yeah, that, that whole record is, is up there with where everyone will consider to be the best Supremes record. And every, every song on that was written by Holland Dozier Holland. So they're not, they're not covering and, and songs that they wrote specifically for them. So they're not, you know covering other people's songs like it's it's all pure supremes and i have to say a lot of the songs on that album did very well in my ranked playlist Ooh, that's good to know that is good to know for some future listeners Mm -hmm. it's it's one of the first ones i would recommend for future listening But yeah, but I would say that I would say Baby Love is is the standout of that album. It it is another one with that uh kind of structuralist feel. Mhm. I'm kind of noticing a trend. I mean like Love Child had very obvious verse chorus sections. Yeah. They're very, they're very pronounced. I mean, you know, it's we're getting into the 70s, everything's got to be interesting dynamics and whatever. But you know that, uh, as far as I know, that '60s music—it's kind of what sounds good. Sounds good. Good hook. Okay, cool. Doesn't have to be the chorus, the verse, um, or at least with the Supremes, that's that's the way that it is, and and it works. I mean, it obviously you can't hurry love number one, baby love number one, and they're good songs. Here we are listening to them. Love child them. number one. Well, love child wasn't that 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 structure but yeah and i can't remember i can't remember if the next one is that way um not really no the the next one has a has a pretty weird uh uh, structure to it as well but as far as maybe slowing down goes this is it's kind of it's kind of i mean the supremes aren't i assume one of those bands that has like the eight BPM grandiose string ballads. No. And (laughs) and one of the surprising things that I found was that the lack of ballads that they made. Yeah. It's, it was, it was, it was just like, huh. But then I thought about, I was just like a lot of Motown. Most of the Motown hits are not ballads. One of the things that was part of the Motown sound was that it got you up and dancing. It was a very low number of weepy ballads, which honestly I was quite happy about because that's the thing in a lot of artist discographies, especially in this time, that it starts to make the listening very tough to get through. Hmm. But also the reason why so many of them did it was because, for the most part, that's what topped the charts. It was the ballads, yeah. 
is the ballads. And the 60s is kind of a rare decade where um, the ballads didn't take up the majority of the hits because so many, I would say just about every Motown hit of the 60s. There was only one off the top of my head I can think of, and it was from the 70s with the Jackson 5's I'll Be There. That's the only Motown number one that I can think of that's a ballad. Hmm. Yeah, so this... Obviously, we're in the... We're in the region of time where there's not a lot of ballads. Yeah, but even Motown. before before the 60s, a lot of the big songs were ballads. Even 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 the beginning of the 60s, like we look back at Georgia on my mind. That was at in 1961, that was the type of song that went to number 1. Hmm. That wow. And then so, and then when we get to the 70s, it returns to that's the kind of song that goes to number 1. In so the eighties, you've got the power ballad. That that's even more impressive that they're shooting a number one with the upbeat song. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that made Motown stand out was that it was it was hit songs that uh that got you up on your feet dancing, having a good time. Yeah. And this this song definitely gets to that point. It yes. starts off where you're just kind of like, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen. It's a little slower-ish. Uh, what song are we talking about? We're talking about I Hear a Symphony. Yes. We haven't even said that yet. Oh, boy. So, anyway, you're going to hear a symphony if you hit play on this song. Well, maybe not a maybe not a real proper symphony, but there is a lot of stuff happening musically. This, was, I would say, is probably like the most complex song There's of like theirs that they did eight key changes like half so many key song. changes <laughs> well you got you got to get from that subdued intro to the nice triumphant ending mm-hmm. and you have to go like four or five steps to get there oh and and this was another number one wow so um four number ones now yep <laughs> um so Holland Dozier Holland has has uh said that the the inspiration for this song was was watching movies and seeing that uh kind of the inspiration seeing of how all of the main characters whenever they would arrive on screen there would be like a theme song that would play. Mm. And so they got the idea of, you know, this girl loves this man so much that when she sees him this little special little theme music that only she hears plays that's kind of wholesome yeah that's nice and... I, I figured you know it's just it's just a simple love song mm-hmm. at the end and of the day one of them i think it was one of the hollands uh said that the the impact of this song didn't hit him until about 25 years after and that you know he was just you know, when he wrote it, it was just like this is just another song but then he listened to it and he was just like man we did so much this is this is a really complicated song and i'm and i'm realizing now like we made something pretty cool and i'm i'm really proud of this song 
That's good. He should be. He should be. But yeah, it's it goes through so many interesting and it's just it kind of makes you just go, man, even like the simple pop stuff, like it had so much care and attention put into it. Mm-hmm. You know, they just in a way they don't uh they don't write stuff like this anymore. Again, mm-hmm. stuff something that has like eight key changes mm-hmm. <laughs> and is constantly modulating up. Yeah, I mean, nowadays it's all about the it's all about the sound and the it's beat about, drop and yeah, yeah, and it's like that that music that gets you hyped up. That's that's. But cool. then again, the the all the things that people claim that pop music is trying to do now, pe- they were accomplishing with this stuff back then. That's true. It's the same idea of we want to get people up dancing, having a good time. These two decades are doing, are trying to accomplish the same thing, but you can see that one is far superior than the other. Well, when you have less tools to to play around with, you have to be more creative. You have to you have to use more musical tools and less synthesizers and copy paste and overdubbing and stuff. Synthesizer. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta have to um, use your use your brain a little bit, and not to not to sound cliche, but you have to use your heart a little bit, and instead of just chugging out like a cool synth sound, which like I mean I'm not I'm not dissing synth sounds and coming up with cool sounds and whatever. I mean I love that stuff. Oh no, we're gonna. We're gonna have a volume two next month that's gonna have lots of synth in it, but, but it's I mean, but it's glorious, amazing synth. You you look at something like the Supremes, where it's like they didn't, and we talked about Ray Charles. You know, they didn't have overdubbing. You had to do a lot of this stuff live, and uh, like you had a few takes, and you had to, and you had to use the. Um, the music writing creativity. You just had to be a dang good songwriter. You couldn't rely on really anything else. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not the instrument. It's not the this or that or whatever. It's just songwriting. And that's just, that's what makes something like uh, this, like the oldies quote unquote, just a little in this in this magical way that we don't really have anymore and i feel kind of sad but i'm also 20 so i never really experienced this time period so <laughs> you know maybe it's not so bad maybe if you maybe if you track the progression throughout your own life and you're much older than, than me then you're like oh yeah modern music is like the the logical conclusion of where we are it makes sense but i don't know anyway that's just that's just my my thoughts on that. So, anyway, I'm we'll, uh, we'll we'll go on to our next one. This is uh, <laughs> this is our only uh, non-hit. Whoa! This is, our, this is the deep cut of the set. This is the deep cut. Do you know what it went to? It was not even a single. This is this is a true deep cut, like album cut. But yes. I loved it so much that I was just like, I gotta put this on there and. 
again, the fact that as far as singles, they didn't release any slower tempo songs, and I felt like I needed one in here somewhere. I had to go to the album Deep Cut to get that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Unchained Melody, which is a is a is one of the great pop standards. This really? is this is one of the most covered songs in music history. I saw something that it's been covered like over fifteen hundred times. Oh, that explains why I kind of recognized it. There are there are some very famous versions of the song. The most famous being uh, the Righteous Brothers, their version of it. Um, Elvis had a famous, but like not because it was this amazing version, but because it was one of the last things he ever recorded before he died. Yeah, I I figured I had heard an Elvis. And also, there's a video of him performing it on stage when he's at his absolute worst physically. And it's it kind of makes you cry a little bit because you can literally see that it's a man that's about to die pretty much. And he's just so bloated and so sick looking. And yet he is that he is he is giving the song his all. It's kind of every a lot of people like look at it and say it's kind of Elvis's last great moment. I I have seen this where he kind of just looks like a little. He looks like a he just he looks like a balloon that's just on the verge of being overinflated. Yeah, I've seen that. And, it's and just... again, I'm not I'm not saying like that he's that he's fat. It's just he's swollen. His his yeah. entire body just looks so unproportionately swollen that it's just it's very sad to see. But yeah, it's kind of and like before he sings a song, he's like mumbling and can barely speak. But then he sits down at the piano and he just wails the song. I have I have seen this. I think I was the one that showed it to you. You might have been when we recorded our Elvis episode. That would have made sense oh wow that's that's really that's quite the callback yeah two years ago we did that episode oh goodness i was thinking the other day i was just like man we should do an elvis volume two sometime you know i think i think we're due you know maybe maybe in a few months you never know Unless, unless every single person listening right now is just like, no, we hate Elvis, then it's like, okay, fine. But he is one of those artists that, that you know warrants another, warrants another volume. Oh hey, yeah. Like, but so that's all to say that um, that Unchained Melody. It's a famous song. So many people have done versions of it. But this, and so because of that. This is one of the handful of songs that when I when I go through artist discography, I just I know I'm gonna find it. I know I'm gonna see it. There's there's like there's like seven or eight songs that I'm never surprised. Like I can't tell you the number of versions I've heard of House of the Rising Sun <laughs> and uh Money, that's what I want. Um like there's just there's just those certain songs that 
I know I'm going to see. And Unchained Melody is one of them. And so when I hear one of these covers and I'm blown away by it, that kind of sticks out to me. Because usually I'm used to hearing just like half-assed versions of a lot of these songs. Because it's just, it's an easy thing to just go, oh, everyone knows this song. Everyone's done it here. We'll just put it on. And, you know, it's almost like a shortcut. Not so. This is one of the most beautiful versions of this song I've ever heard. So what about this version? It's just, it has this, it has this elegance and smoothness to it. It's, it's almost got that, that Phil Spector wall of sound to it. Mm. and one of the things i find with something like unchained melody it's one of those songs that that lends itself to a uh an overout big like belting performance a la elvis <laughs> yeah that's usually the the route that people will take and i what i found so amazing about this rendition was just how reserved it is while still retaining all the emotion Mm -hmm. like diana is not going for the throat on this version she's she's giving a very reserved performance and yet you can still feel everything that you need to feel a big part of that being that she's got a great arrangement behind her as well as the the background vocals what florence and mary are doing is 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 help supporting everything so much to where diana doesn't have to carry everything squarely on her own shoulders that's true you do you do you do hear that where it's it is like a, a, a pure call and response um fifty fifty type mm-hmm. of type of thing. Where it's not they're just repeating the last word. Yeah. Yeah, I just I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I think it's I would say it's it's probably one of the most straight up beautiful songs that they ever did. Wow. That's because That's again, a lot of songs, I'm sure. I know, but it was you would be surprised by how unoften they go into this kind of song, which was again very surprising. It's the majority of all of their albums is filled with up tempo songs. Motown. And so it, <laughs> it kind of it kind of stood out a little bit when we had a song that was so slow like this and That's- and so uh, ballady. That's how you do a ballad. You kind of you surround it with a whole bunch of up tempo songs, mm-hmm. and then you're like, oh, you know, that's the significance of, of of fade to black and and all of those metal ballads. It's like these these metal artists had their first you know album or two albums or whatever, or sometimes like their first few songs that people had ever heard, and it's just fast, fast, fast. And then you get to something that's got acoustic guitar and it's all slow and maybe there's some strings or synths or something and it's clean vocals. And you're just like, whoa, this is a change of pace. I kind of like it because it's something 
it's something different for the ear to hear. And, and when you do it well, when you, when you fit a good ballad in that position, it takes something that was already great into something that's truly special in every sense of the word. So anyway, someday, someday we'll get to the end of this episode. <laughs> with uh, with someday we'll be together. That's our final song. So this is off the whole box set. So you had to really search for this one. Yes, um, this is a number one hit though, but it was it was not on an album. It was a standalone single. Right. Uh, this is the song that I was uh, referring to in the first segment about how uh, they had a farewell song. Whenever she was leaving the Supremes. Oh, this is it. This is this was their final number one. Okay. Um, they released it, and again, this is this this shows just how songs went to number one back in the day. This released in like October of '69. She announced in November that she was leaving the Supremes, and then in December. It was when it peaked at number one. Wow, slow burn. Yeah, but I mean, again, that was that was as as ten, but that's about it. That's that's a fairly normal pace for songs for singles back in that day. Is that you usually uh, you had a slow climb to the top? Hmm. So. Are these lyrics meant to be about Diana leaving the Supremes? So, um, this was actually originally written in 1961 by by a husband and wife couple that wrote it for their own vocal group, and they never went anywhere. And it was just one of those ones that was um, somehow... I believe somehow they had a family relationship with Barry Gordon. Like it was like the the wife's sister was married to his brother or something like that kind of connection to where he got his hands on it. And he was actually going to uh, have it for a different artist mm-hmm. and like like did the the instrumental recording the background vocals so this is another song that uh that the other supremes are not featured on it's just diana but it's because that everything except for diana's lead was recorded when it was originally for a different artist and then at the last minute barry changed his mind and and had an idea and was just like wait this will be the perfect song to uh to have Diana finish off with the Supremes. Yeah. This this can kind of be her farewell song. So when they did it, it was meant to be that way. Yes, but it wasn't written to be that way. But that was the the plan was this is going to be like her this is going to be her swan song with with the group. That was the did they catch on? Well, yeah, because again, uh, well, are you saying the public? Yeah. Well, yeah, because 
That's why that's why I laid out the timeline. It was it was released in October. She announced in November that she's leaving, and then it went to number one in December. Well, but like when they released it, there's there's no like supreme super fans that are like, oh, this means you know. But I guess not. No, but by the time it was the number one song in the world, everyone understood the context. Yeah, of it. I guess. I guess, I guess. But in a in a in a in an interesting way, it ended up being uh, a bit prophetic because someday, only once, but someday they actually were, uh, they did come back together, and performed this song. One of the few songs they did perform together when they reunited the one time. The well, it was just Ross and Wilson. And uh and Birdsong. Ah. Yes. Because remember, Florence Ballard was not part of the she wasn't even part of the group at this point anyway. Mm. Man, that sucks, but unfortunately that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. That's the way it happens. But this 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 is a bit of a different sounding type of final song than what we normally do. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it doesn't have, like, that big, like, climactic moment. But yet, at the same time, just, like, the the whole atmosphere of this song. It just, it has this feeling of, like, something's over, and yet it's not the end. It's not the end. You know, it's 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 this... You know, and it's just that's what the theme of the song is. It's it's a relationship that's over. The relationship is over, and yet at the there's the hope of someday we'll be together, regardless of whether we are together now. You know, it's it's not goodbye. It's see you later. Even though I hate that cliche, it's it's a good way to describe it. Well, I had never heard that before, so it's not cliche to me. It sounds kind of profound. But um, I don't know. Maybe that's just not a Gen Z thing. Maybe not. Maybe not. But I get I get the meaning. That is kind of cool. Um, and it's it it's kind of cool. It's also prophetic. It's it's really interesting to see songs like that. That you have no idea that it's like oh this is gonna be, this maybe isn't. Uh, written from real experiences but whether fortunately or unfortunately it will be close to real experiences and that's that's the kind of stuff that like makes studying music studying music not like i'm getting a degree in music but the podcast very interesting because you get the stories like that that are just like oh my gosh this song has it is really weird unintentional story about it but i mean here we are and and they did get back together and they sang this song ah you know i know so poetic it's so cool it's so cool but yeah it isn't it it's even like a fade out so it's not like a definitive end too so even more thematically with like the whole set you know, you get to the end, it's like, someday we'll be together. Like, someday is still in the future. You got the fade out, which means that this is continual kind of 
whatever the emotion is usually it's, that, that's bitters- how it's bittersweet right well it has this bittersweet yeah, it feeling it's 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 sad that it's over but it's happy that it happened and who knows maybe it'll happen again that's a that's a cliche that i do know don't cry because it's over smile because it happened i don't know there's a, there's some meaning there's some meaning to clichés of course but someday we will be giving our final thoughts that day is today in fact Unless and the hour, the hour is at hand. It could be midnight wherever you're listening. So now it's tomorrow, but it will be today now. So get ready for that. Or you can use the Everly Brothers weird logic that when it's nighttime in Italy, it's Wednesday over here. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that's just so still, weird. the more I think about that, the more that does not make sense. Makes sense. Yeah. But anyway, that's just our way of saying that we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about The Supreme. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just got finished talking about our six songs by the Supremes. Those songs, just as a recap, were Love Child, You Can't Hurry Love, Baby Love, I Hear a Symphony, Unchained Melody, and Someday We'll Be Together. As a reminder, the way that you can go listen to these songs is there's a link in the description of the episode that takes you to our Spotify playlist where you can hear not just the songs from this episode but all the songs from our previous episodes as well um i would highly recommend you go check out these songs even if you have heard them before even if you are a supremes fan hearing them in this order i guarantee will give you a brand new experience with them so now it's time to talk about our final thoughts so uh grant you started off just at a a five a place that you find yourself at I'm sure quite often in this podcast. Oh yeah. <laughs> the majority is I don't know who this is. It's time to learn. Yeah, well, it is. And and of course I knew the phrase Diana Ross and the Supremes and of course the name the Supremes and by extension Diana Ross. But I didn't know any of their songs. I didn't expect to recognize a single one. Um but obviously, like, there were a couple of, of hooks that I did. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, the, the, maybe it's the, the influence or perhaps their importance in music or whatever at some point brought that hook to my ears through another artist or through something or whatever. And it's almost like you can't escape some artist's. Like you have to live under a rock to not hear something that they've put out. Um, 
because I mean, you know, everywhere you go, there's music playing in the background, you know, there's music playing on the radio, there's music playing in, you know, your local grocery store, there's music playing in restaurants sometimes, and you tend to put on music just to fill audio space. And so there's some artists that people are just like, oh yeah, this is an objectively good artist. Let's put them on this on this music to fill some audio space. And when you're a really good artist, you get put on that list. And obviously the Supremes are on that list because I recognize some stuff here. So that's, that's very important to note, I think. Um, the other thing was like the weird, really weird interpersonal relationships, right? Like we've, we've been trying to put together me and my dad have been trying to put together the cover band, which is now striking distance for uh, three and a half years now. And we've had like, we've had some very fortunate, like, for example, you, right. We've had some very fortunate meetings with people where it's like, Oh my gosh, we both love music. We're all about this type of music. We're good bandmates and we show up and that kind of stuff. But we've also had those instances where people, you know, don't show up and you know maybe they don't practice or whatever and so i can imagine like putting together a successful band and then having it taken away from you like that's so that's so terrible and then also like being in a successful band and trying to uh, like hold on to what you've been given kind of like in the in the case of diana ross like she was given all these um uh, positions in the Supremes like as the as the lead vocalist and then she was put on her own solo career and whatever and and trying to hold on to that because at any moment it could slip you know you could just have some unfortunate um string of of songs or an unfortunate occurrence with some um label or whatever and then it's just all gone so that I can imagine the amount of stress being on top of the world trying to stay on top of the world um, so that's it's just really interesting how that manifests in this way in especially in such great magnitude because of the level of fame um, so maybe that's maybe this is another instance of be careful what you wish for if you're wanting to be a, a famous musician um, but at the end of the day it is it is another interesting story in the big tapestry of music and it was just it was interesting to open up into the world of Motown properly and the world of 60s music this side of 60s music that we hardly ever talk about um it was also weird that the Diana Ross and Supreme songs sounded way different than the Supreme songs uh, and maybe that's just a maybe that's a because of the time period. I imagine it's a lot to do with the time period. But all the Supreme songs are like, oh yeah, I love you. I hear a symphony. Oh yeah, as the river flows to the sea, you know that kind of stuff, and <laughs> that kind of stuff. But the Diana Ross Supreme songs were a little bit more um, like social commentary. There was the seventies strings and maybe that's because we're at the seventies now and, and things were just very much different. 
and I don't know what that says. Maybe maybe that's for someone else to interpret. But it was just an interesting thing to note that it was it was it's almost like a different band, and they're labeled as a different band on Spotify. I mean, you click on the artist that we have in the list uh, and take you to Diana Ross and Supremes, which does not take you to the same place as the Supremes. So it's just it's interesting. It's interesting. So. Um, a, a all around just weird hodgepodge of thoughts as my final thought, but it was a fun, fun episode to just open up a whole new genre. A whole new label. Uh, a whole new well. Don't copyright us, Disney. <laughs> yeah, now now we're gonna have the whole podcast taken down by uh, Disney. Um, anyway, I would recommend uh, for okay thing. Um, obviously, Where'd Our Love Go is mm-hmm. it's almost kind of like if you just want like pure classic Motown Supreme. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to have kind of like the more artsy experimental, I would recommend I Hear a Symphony. That was a record that I listened to of theirs. Really? It's- I mean, either way, these are these are only 30 minutes, so mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're worried about too big of an investment that's not so much and then you'll know then you then you'll maybe will have learned or listened to something that you will have loved i'm kind of talking to myself now trying to hype myself up to listen to this stuff <laughs> it's not taking much though i'm kind of excited so um yeah i i gotta move to six i just don't have the discography for the supremes to move to seven as as is usual on a volume. as is usual. I mean, that's just that's just what you got to do. Unfortunately, there's a lot of great artists that sit in the sixth position. I mean, a, a lot, a lot of great artists. So that's why that's why I like to give you recommendations on going. Okay, if you're gonna, if you want to get up from a six, this is this is where you should go. Mm-hmm. So okay, so now it's time for oh, and what was your favorite song? What was my favorite thong? Thong. Whoa. Favorite song. (laughs) Probably You Can't Hurry Love. It just had, it just had. It's a classic. It just, there are just some songs in the set every single episode that is, it's infectious and it's like, yeah, it's cliche to pick this as your favorite, but it would be a crime not to, at least from my perspective. Hey, what part that was this on? Hmm? What part of the set was that song in? It was in the... Oh, wow. It was in the second spot. Yes, it was. Okay. I'm going to let you live that down. The second song... You know, I listened through... Um, so, those of you who are not longtime listeners, like a year and a half to two years ago, I had this inkling that Lucas particularly put bad songs as the second song and obviously that's not the case because when i listened back um and one of the one of the biggest examples was dream theater our first dream theater episode constant motion was second position that was the first uh dream theater song that i had really listened to because you um i played it at the end of a after dawn show you played well i thought you played not it at after the dawn, uh, uh area 52 area yeah I thought, I, I thought you played it at the beginning and like I, play, I played while we were cleaning up, while we were breaking down. Oh yeah, and then it was the solo. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. But compared to the rest of the set, I thought I thought it was pretty. It was kind of weak. 
I listened back through um, uh, that whole album. I can't remember what it's called. Systematic Chaos. Systematic Chaos. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, I remember this song. Oh, this is on this. Oh, you know, so just a lot of like interesting, interesting things. And of course, just, um, oh, Constant Motion came on and I'm like, yep, I remember the song. This is a good song. <laughs> one one that that's the one that still bugs me to this day is you saying that uh, Englishman in New York was a, a bad song. I that was another one that you were just like, man, the second song you just you just put a bad one on there. I I don't I don't like that. Other than that, the song's great. That's it. That's why it's like a bad song to me. It's a matter. It's a matter of personal preference. Maybe, maybe I should, in my maturity now, say that, in my opinion, like my ear, I don't like that song, but I can now say you're objectively a that's a great song. In my opinion, me, me personally, I just want. I just want to stress the fact that that is my opinion. But I can still say that the songwriting is very strong, and there's a lot of parts of the songs that I really do like. So anyway, all I have to talk about this the second song slump. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll I'll, uh, I won't I won't bore you guys too long with mine. Um, (laughs) I would say that a six is probably, although I would say maybe veering close to a seven. Because again, my biggest thing is I I knew who the Supremes were. I knew a lot of their biggest hits. Like we didn't even talk about some of their all time biggest ones, like "Stop" in the name of love. And what? Wait, that was them? Yeah, that's them. Um, you keep me hanging on. Um, where'd our love go? My world is empty without you. Like all of these huge, huge songs. And, um, again, I knew who they were, but I just, I had no understanding of just how big, how important they were and, uh, how much I needed to listen to them and understand what they did, not just for Motown, not just for, um, for African-American music, but just for music period, it's it's one of the biggest oversights I think I've found so far in my in my uh, music knowledge. The fact that I that I have been ignorant and sleeping on a group that has had twelve number one hits. Yeah, it's 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 something that I am uh, I was quite happy to correct. And as well as just sleeping on Motown in general is one of those things that I'm just – I'm kind of kicking myself for and just going, why have I not listened to this more? Yeah. So thank you, Supremes, for <laughs> uh, for helping me to see the error of my way. I'm also now very curious to uh, see what uh, Diana Ross's solo career is like. Ooh, good point. That's a whole other avenue we can take. Oh yeah, that that's that that essentially will be Supreme's volume two. 
is uh, uh, the the solo career. So, um, my favorite song, I think Love Child is just, it's just got so much, so many interesting things going on. It's the one that I found myself humming the most. And just the one that I just overall was excited to listen to again the most number of times. Was uh, was Harry a big Supremes fan? He actually was, which was surprising because whenever we did the Casey Musgraves episode and I showed him the songs, he had told me, I don't like songs that girls sing. But yeah, then, I, I had figured if that changed. But then he didn't mention anything about them being women. He was just like, oh, that sounds really cool. Uh, his favorite one was uh, I Hear a Symphony. Uh, yes. mm, and then I'll uh, I'll quickly say where everything sits on the ranked playlist. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Unchained Melody is at number eight. Someday We'll Be Together at six. Baby Love at five. Hear a Symphony at three. Love Child at two. And You Can't Hurry Love at number one. Hey, I just so we think have, we I think it's, you can't hurry love. It's just it's it's too good to deny it. Even though I personally enjoy you can't hurry love more. It's you know I will acknowledge that it's 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 the winner. It's 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 the song that I think that has stood the test of time as kind of their most iconic song, and it's just. It's just a great pop song on top of that. We got a we got a serving of some of the top songs, but there's a couple of there's a couple of songs in there that we didn't talk about. Oh yeah. Definitely. So there's there's more to be heard for for sure. How long of a ranked playlist? How many songs? Um it was hundred and forty songs. And wow. that's, and that didn't cover everything. Because there's still the entire post-Diana Ross period. As well as I didn't get into most of the non-album material, as well as all of these albums had expanded editions that I didn't touch because I knew that I wouldn't have enough time. Yeah, that makes sense. And even still, it it was six and a half hours of music, but 140 songs. And sometimes those are more exhausting than the ones that are like, 10 to 12 hours but have less songs Mm -hmm. when you've got when every song is uh is exactly two and a half minutes you have to constantly be evaluating what you're listening to yeah it starts to get very difficult to keep in your head what you've already listened to yeah all right so That is our episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you have heard, then make sure that you go and um, hit subscribe on whatever platform that you're listening on. We have new episodes every Monday at midnight. Next week is going to be a continuation of our music history series. Uh, We're going to be talking about another romantic era composer, We're going to be talking about a guy named Franz Schubert, 
I've and, heard that name. And we're going to be talking about a specific uh, type of song that he was quite good at called The Leader. Ooh, that I have not heard. Yeah, there's some <laughs> really, there's some really cool stuff in there. So uh, make sure you go check out that out next week. But if music history perhaps isn't your cup of tea, although I would highly recommend uh, the following week we're gonna we're gonna have a great group that we're gonna be talking about. So uh, and then make sure you follow us on social media on Instagram and Facebook, where you can get in on the conversation. It's the best way to contact us. Let us know what artists you would like for us to cover in a future episode. And uh, make sure you check out both the links in the description of the episode. One of them takes you to that Spotify list that I told you about. The other one takes you to our Patreon page where we have uh, our exclusive segment, the Bad Music Podcast. We're going to be talking about the six worst Supreme songs, and it is a worthy bottom six. We haven't had that many really bad songs yet there's, uh, there's some funny moments yes there's some interesting things I've, happening here <laughs> i've been slightly disappointed by uh not really encountering some bad songs which is good for the artists it's good for the artist yes but it's not as much fun for us but we've got a couple that we're gonna really enjoy talking about in that segment so make sure you go check that out and that's it I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music. Music.